right from the get-go, I have to tell everyone that there is construction happening above my flat. So there is probably some kind of annoying hammering and drilling sound that you're going to hear throughout this episode. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to just get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. For us, Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash make. Let's get into it. Hello. Hello, Cherise. So how many games of Fortnite did you win this weekend? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not jump into that first and foremost i don't know it's funny are you uh, embarrassed eugene i just don't want to admit how much fortnite i've been playing i'm but not, it's just I'm like not it's, even calling you out on how much fortnite you've been playing but hey man if there were making it up listeners who wanted to play fortnite with you would you be open to it it's like it's a very destructive sort of tendency i have not destruct i don't even don't even call it destructive but it's like when i get into something I try really hard to get good at it or to get to a baseline level because I there's always an expectation You're right like you never want to be the worst. That's what it is. Mm, I mean I'm not I know I'm not going to be like a professional Fortnite player. So I've been like trying cuz like I'm the guy on the team that's like 0 and 0, which means 0 kills and 0 assists, meaning like I did absolutely nothing. What? Right? Yeah, like well, but Fortnite's also different because it's you don't win by virtue of having the most kills. It's more. Are you like telling survival, me that you're right? like the project manager of the team? Whoa, I mean, uh, sure, but it's I'm the guy that's communicating, but I also am not the guy that's going in and like. Let's put it this way: I'm not the Michael Jordan of the team. Okay. I'm not even the Scottie Pippen. So you're the coach. Maybe you're a Dennis coach. Rodman, kind of, but like the coach that plays, which. You know, the coach doesn't play, right? I also think in amateur sports, the coach is always a bad connotation because it's like the guy that is just there because either he's too old or he can't contribute on the pitch or well, he's volunteering to be part of the, the club, you I, know? I didn't force you to describe yourself there, so. Yeah. Do you want to start with your subject? Sure, I'll jump into it. My subject this week is, and I don't really like this title, uh, yeah, me neither. I, I think it's just more. Yeah, I don't. I don't like this title, but it's called "Meet the Parenting Expert Who Thinks Parenting Is a Terrible Invention." It sounds kind of clickbaity. It's not though. Like it's, it's a very totally in-depth not. article. It's completely not. But it's it doesn't match, right? No, like you, you, it doesn't. You kinda, yeah. Anyways. Anyway, it's so about parenting. This, <laughs> yeah, but it, I have to preface like I'm not a parent, neither Sharice. Yeah. But I find parenting and education almost you know, two in the same, right? Like there's a lot of things that you're trying to teach and or what's the word? Glean? I don't think glean is the right word, but basically you're trying to like pull nuggets. You're trying to like develop a framework and structure, right? Yeah. So that's why I find this interesting. And I mean, parenting is so much a part of life. You know, that's something that the authors talk about in this article. Like even as non-parents, 
parenting is part of so many of our peers' lives and also affect you know the economy and the makeup of society. Dude, yeah. So it makes sense Especially to be when interested you're just in age. it. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I think you did a good job explaining why I find parenting so fascinating, even though I'm not a parent, right? Because it's kind of like setting yourself up. It's like peering into the crystal ball of what the next generation will look like or how to prepare the next generation. Yeah, and also it will impact our own futures as well because of, you know, what the population demographics look like. Anyways, this is a piece in The Correspondent, and it was co-written by Irene Caselli and Lynn Berger. Together, the two discuss the modern approach to parenting, how many people misunderstand the role of learning for children. And what I mean by that is we often look at the way children behave and think to ourselves, why or how could they think like that or how could they behave like that? And I kind of fall into this because there's a subreddit I follow called Kids Are Fucking Stupid. And it's really just, and it's kind of shitty if you think about it, if you zoom out, because obviously these are kids, right? Like they're in their this early stages of their life, they're developing. And it's just videos of kids that are doing things that are nonsensical, but they're kids. And it's like their parents usually posting it. Like obviously their parents had to share it because their parents were taking a video that thought it was funny. And now all of Reddit and all of the world sees it. Part of me thinking back, like maybe even before this article, I was like, man, yeah, why do kids act the way they are? Not really understanding how it works from maybe a more uh, psychological or physiological state, right? Or in that in that sort of vein. Yeah, I mean, it's not always painted as we don't understand or like kids are stupid, but a lot of times you look at a child and like don't see. It's like impossible for your adult brain to understand how they reached, you know, the logic behind their decision. Like to yes, us, to yeah. us, all of their actions seem so unconnected, you know? Yeah. But to yeah. them, something is governing the way they're behaving and what they do. I, li- I like the way you say that. Yeah. Governing. Yeah. But I mean, as you understand the process, learning something that is in itself very layered, mm. how you effectively learn as a child is not how you learn as an adult and vice versa. So tell me more about the person who's been interviewed in this. Yeah. So the piece speaks with developmental psychologist and philosopher Allison Gobnick, who serves as the head of Cognitive Development and Learning Lab at the University of California at Berkeley. And so what does she do? Here's a quote I think that sums it up quite well. Her work is devoted to explaining, inaccessible and lucid prose, why those elements that can make caring for babies and infants such an exasperating endeavor, their incredible dependence, their seemingly utter inability to focus, their messiness, are not design flaws, but the most important features of childhood. It's mentioned that earlier developmental psychologists like the famous Sigmund Freud and Jean Piaget painted infants and children as underdeveloped humans. But perhaps all along we've misread the behavior of children and sort of misunderstood what role and what part of this sort of cycle they are going through as they're learning. What I really liked is that Gopnik says you have to understand the purpose of childhood and that the purpose of being a child and the purpose of their learning is different from our purposes as adults. And it tips into the next few points I'm going to talk about. Uh, Gobnik mentions that if you tell your children to go outside and play, give them a bag of goldfish crackers, and then shut the door, this leads to great improvements in their cognitive control, their conceptual understanding, and their abilities to explore. And then she goes on to highlight sort of what you mentioned, the idea of life history and how every organism has developed specific tasks and goals for a particular part of its life cycle. Mm-hmm. 
So what this means is that the way children act and approach the world is obviously different than adults. So in their early stages of childhood, they focus on exploration, and they've also been shown to decipher between fact and fiction, possess a moral compass, and make inferences about the world on their own. So they're actually not as incapable as we say they are, but perhaps mm-hmm. the way they behave outwardly might suggest that. And after they've gone past that exploration phase, they grow into this, what they call the exploitation phase. I actually don't think that's the right word. And I, because when I was reading, I was like, is it exploitation or is it more the application of their learnings? Like, are you exploiting your knowledge? I didn't really mm, agree yeah. with that. Exploit you know, is it's, a bit weird, but it's like using what you've learned as tools, which isn't a catchy word, but I feel like you're you're using what you equipped yourself with. It's basically applying, right? Which I think I would push back and say application is probably a better word. Yeah. So anyways, you take these learnings and you apply them to achieve goals. Mm -hmm. And then along the way, what role do adults play is like they're the leaders and they serve as guidance. Mm -hmm. And right now, if you look at the way most kids are parented, and I say most kids, I think maybe it's less that every kid is parented this way, but I think there's a certain common assumption that to achieve peak development, you have to push them through a certain model. Yeah. Right? So I mean, Gopnik says that too. It's not like Eugene and I are sitting here as non-parents trying to judge parents, right? Like, I don't, I don't want things to come across that way. But like, Gopnik and the authors of this article also point out, you know, there's like this trend in society where parenting is framed as there being a successful way to parent and therefore like also a way you can parent to fail you know you can be a failure as a parent and 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 they're talking about very actually a very narrow scope of parenting they're not talking about like abandonment and abuse they're talking about like you know parenting your child in a healthy and safe environment but then like doing certain things in terms of like guiding them through after school classes or like study prep and stuff like that that one way seems more successful than others the, this is what I sort of inferred. It's that parenting shouldn't be about enforcing limitations, but rather helping facilitate goals that aren't always defined by your own interests as a parent, but rather the goal of the life cycle. So a lot of times I think that we've, we've seen this probably more than ever is that children are forced through this lens of the parent to sort of embody some of the, the adult tendencies. It's like dressing your kid a certain way like trying to get them to accelerate and behave like an adult as soon as possible, perhaps. It's interesting because there's going to be these cultural and societal norms that you need to not necessarily be comfortable with, but you have to recognize. Like if I'm in a public environment and my child behaves a certain way, but I recognize that this is part of the quote-unquote life cycle, but it doesn't fall within cultural norms, Mm -hmm. then you as a parent need to know how to behave yourself like if someone comes up and is like, yo, yo, your kid's being a little shit, like how do you how do you push back against that? Oh, like do you yeah. do you break out the literature and say, Hey, like he's just part of the life cycle? <laughs> right? Um, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I think one thing I really liked was this comparison where parenting isn't like behaving like a carpenter, where you're trying to build an end product, but rather act as a gardener who plant seeds and care for them with only a vague, ever-receding end in mind. Mm -hmm. I like that too. It's really well put. And then they also go on to talk about 
what are the things right now within culture and society that are preventing us from really allowing childhood to follow maybe a more biological trajectory? And that is the way families are set up. We've talked about this at length, about the nuclear yeah. family, right? Yeah, but yeah. still worth mentioning about how families in the past were extended networks of your relatives and also people you weren't related to. And so everyone took on kind of child care activities together, uh, whereas now a lot of the responsibility falls on just two adults, which is really too much. That's what they say. Like it's mm -hmm. you become overextended and overwhelmed. And also because of the way a lot of societies are built, there's not a whole lot of su support for parents, you know, like not mm -hmm. every workplace offers like daycare, right? Or even like extensive maternity and paternity leave. And those things affect how you're able to parent. Yeah. And there's one other point that they believe is impacting the way we parent, and that's meritocracy. And the belief that if your kids aren't on a certain path, then they'll fall out of sort of the middle class and above, right? Because there's an association of education, knowledge, and information as the key tools for social mobility, which is arguably pretty truthful, yeah. right? For the most part. So that there's no denying that. But I think it's like, how do you arrive at that end point? And I think that if there's anything, I think the minute that, education became such a big business and there was the narrative that you need this to succeed in life which is not incorrect but i think the the sort of blurring of the lines between business and the role it plays in in a, a well-functioning society was a bit blurred mm -hmm. i think that's when things became a bit more problematic yeah i mean it's really interesting the way they put this in the article because they also say within our economic situation, it totally makes sense why parents behave the, the way they do. But as a society, this is all not a very good decision. So they say, it might seem rational to turn your child into an optimally fit participant in society, but in the long run, it's a very bad idea. Gopnik thinks opting for variety is a good evolutionary strategy. After all, once circumstances change, having only goal-oriented, focused grade A students who become leaders might no longer be of much use. Our species might then benefit more from having a good crop of creative, adventurous, and open-minded members who can come up with solutions to whatever new problems we are facing. And what I think is kind of funny is the way they frame it as like an evolutionary strategy. Like as a society, we have to all opt in for parenting children this other way that allows for variety in order for like our collective mm -hmm. good, which I think is really hard to like convince people to do, you know? Because like you're then you're framing it as like being um, revolutionary almost. I don't know if that's like too extreme, but like you got to buck the trend for not just your own good, like you and your child, but like for everyone's well-being. I don't know mm -hmm. if it's a persuasive argument to parents. I think the one thing that was most illuminating was the life cycle approach within this whole piece, because I think that the cycle is something that's often overlooked in a lot of things because at any given point in time where you are in the cycle dictates different needs right yeah whether you're in a startup whether you're learning a new skill whether you're an expert there are different strategies and mindsets you need to adopt and or change for you to either find fulfillment grow whatever it may be right so i found that really interesting because i've been 
probably of, and this is me being the ignorant non-parent I am, but thinking that, hey, don't treat kids like kids, treat them like what you think they'll be in the, in, you know, somewhere down the line, mm. right? So don't talk to a kid like a kid, talk to a kid like an adult in terms or words they understand, mm. which is obviously incorrect, right? Well, I mean, I think you can still use adult words, but in terms of content, you're talking to them about their own interests, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think, I don't engage in baby talk mostly, like in terms of like tone of voice or like pitch, but I, I obviously think your content tailors to like the child. Um, but I was going to say in terms of life cycle, you know, you put this in your notes I think it's useful as well to just think about life cycles um, across the board, not just for like children and parents, but it's this idea that like instead of childhood being like preparation for the main event, which is adulthood, and then after you phase through like the middle of your adulthood and then you become useless as like an old person, it's thinking about each of those phases as like having their own separate purpose and goal. And I'm taking this from your notes because you mentioned entrepreneurship, right? And so I think mm -hmm. also like those early stages of like building your own company or starting out in your career is equally as important on its own. Like it doesn't just have to be like in preparation for the big time, like for the main event. Yeah. Is there anything that you think, you know, based off of this, you would adopt to your everyday life? Like despite the fact this is rooted around children, I what mean, are things that you think could be pulled and applied to your own life? I'm not a parent, but I am in, uh, I don't know what you're the a teacher, word is. Though. I like, was going to say, like, am I a re in relationship with children? That seems weird. There are children in my life who I have contact with. And so I, I do think about what spoke to me was the bit about tired, overextended and overwhelmed parents. And I, I actually kind of feel like more responsible now. Like I should be helping out my relatives who are parents of young children more like in the ways I can not to say like I take on loads of responsibility, but like babysitting when I can or like doing an art class for them, you know, that kind of thing that that was like yeah, a really I, practical takeaway. I think it's the expectation and the communication approach that has changed the most for me. Because mm. the way that you approach and like, I mean, for me, you know, sometimes I hang out with my friends' kids, and if they have a problem, I never defer to, like, this is how you do it. It's more like, can you push them? I mean, I, there, there's, in many ways, I like that gardener reference they made, because I feel like I'm okay with that role of just, like, hey, you know where they need to go to solve this problem, or at least one way to solve the problem. Can you push them in that direction, and hopefully they stumble around and then find out on their own? Like that to me is like what's rewarding. It's yeah. not about telling somebody uh, what the answer is, nor is it the long-term benefit, obviously, goes without saying. Um, and also talking to them and just like maybe understanding that sometimes it, it could be annoying when kids are like asking a million questions, but actually it's really part of the cognitive process of understanding the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the bit about how a child throwing their cup repeatedly on the floor is trying to figure out something about gravity. And when you think of it that way, instead of like, this child is trying to annoy me and test my patience, then, you know, things become easier to accept. 
mm-hmm. and embrace. Mm-hmm. And one other thing I liked, you know, speaking as non-parents, is this idea of kids actually benefiting from having variety and in influence. So there is a role for like you and me and non-parents in other children's lives because we provide something else like another reference point that's not their parents so i think some like there is a part of the back of my head where i'm like oh like i don't want to say or demonstrate anything that isn't what the parent would approve of okay Mm -hmm. like i i want to stick by like their parenting book but the position of gopnik and these authors is like actually having multiple reference points is better prepares a child for the world like they don't have to accept exactly who you are and like what your lifestyle is, but ha- giving them something to also like learn from that's different from the one model that they always see gives them, you know, challenges the way they learn. I like that. I'm curious, based off of this, do you think this changes at what point a child learns about sort of the grimy, challenging shit that goes on in the world? Like, do you withhold information? still or do you just like you know if it happens it happens if they find out when they're nine years old about i don't know something the holocaust or they like you know what i mean the whatever it might be like how do do you think that this changes your point of view on that well i don't know if i had a point of view on it before but actually i was reading some stuff about this during maybe like a month ago Right. When there was a lot of protests like Black Lives Matter related material floating around. And Mm -hmm. I was reading some stuff about how to talk to kids about racism. And, you know, you said this earlier that children are actually very attuned to like what is fact and what is fiction. And they're able to make distinctions that we might think like are over their heads. And so sort of experts have recommended, you know, there are ways to talk about, like you said, the grimy stuff, racism and the Holocaust, etc., but in a way yeah, that they understand. I don't know if the right word. Yeah, I don't know, I don't the, know hard stuff, the, right word. the hard stuff yeah, in life. The hard stuff. The hard, I not to, like, happy yeah. stuff in life. Like, there's yeah. no way to shelter your child from that. They actually already intuitively see it anyway. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But no, then when you I, explain it. I wanted to clarify because I think, sorry, I just wanted to clarify. Like, I think grimy was more exactly what you said. Like, I meant more the challenging hard stuff. Yeah. yeah. Not like the, the sort of dirty like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. no I just had to it. clarify that i just want to clarify yeah. that part yeah. yeah the complex stuff i mean i think yeah. there's a way to talk to i don't i am not envious of the people who have to do this and it hasn't happened to me yet like no child has asked me really tough questions uh but i think there's like a way to talk about or what experts say is there's a way to talk about those subjects that they understand like if you look at mr rogers neighborhood and sesame street they talk about tough subjects in language that kids get so it's totally doable. Mm-hmm. That's about it for me. Like, I think that there wasn't really a debate to be had, but more so highlighting an interesting piece of, you know, an interesting article in terms of things that are relational to how we look at the world and how it might potentially influence things that we do currently in our lives in terms of learning and teaching. All right. Moving on. My subject this week is unpleasant. That's what I said to you. I was like, oh, this is so depressing to talk about. But here we are. The subject is 
Silicon Valley elite discuss journalists having too much power in Clubhouse. So to start with, Clubhouse is an invite-only voice chat app. It is an audio social network that mainly is inhabited by venture capitalists and celebrities. It has, I think, around 1,500 users right now, so very limited. I didn't know it was that few. Limited circle of people. I believe so. Do you want me to double? I'll fact check myself right now. Hang on. But I know it's like sub 5,000, but I just didn't expect it to be as low as 1,500. But then you don't really know. I mean, unless they divulge that information, you'll never know. Okay. There was a stat in June that it's sub 2,000. But who really knows? Let's just say somewhere between 1,500 to 5,000 people. Yep. So this is kind of a complicated news story that involves a lot of first names and attributions. So bear with me. Um, For reference, my main article is from Vice, and it was written by Jason Keebler, Joseph Cox, and Anna Merlin. What happens is that Steph Corey, who is the female co-founder of Away and former CEO, she's no longer a current CEO, this is the latest, and Stuart Stuart Hasselden is now the sole CEO of Away. In 2020, this is the latest upset also related to this news item. So Steph Corey posts on her personal IG stories a critique of journalism and the treatment of female founders by tech media, okay? And it's meant to be a critique of journalism, but in many ways it sounds like she thinks how tech media has treated her was unfair specifically, okay? And the backstory of this is there was like an expose on Steph Corey and the work environment at Away published in several places like just many media outlets covered this like expose on away and Steph Corey last year and then Taylor Lawrence who is a tech reporter for the New York Times retweeted screenshots of those IG stories along with a kind of comment about them and she said Steph Corey, the disgraced former CEO of a way luggage company, is ranting on IG stories about the media. Her posts are incoherent, and it's disappointing to see a woman who ran a luggage brand perpetuate falsehoods like this about an industry she clearly has zero understanding of. Okay, so then, I haven't even gotten to the main point yet. And then, a bunch of entrepreneurs and Anderson Horowitz VCs gathered together on Clubhouse, to talk about how journalists have too much power to cancel people and discuss like what they could do about the power of media. Okay, so that's kind of the main news item. I am not super interested in talking about Steph Corey and Taylor Lawrence and like the individual actors within this news story because I just don't find it very, I don't know. I don't find it productive. I find it still participating in this like, fame-based culture that cares too much about like individuals and their arguments with each other which is really what this Mm -hmm. is this is really like a news story about like three people having a public argument and then everyone else like watching and eating popcorn which like part of me enjoys the eating popcorn bit as you know because of like quibi Mm -hmm. But the other part of me is like upset that we spend so much time on this. 
What I think is interesting is the relationship between Silicon Valley and tech startups and tech media. Okay. Because what the Vice article, I think, like what the real nugget is here is like Silicon Valley maybe misunderstands the role of journalism when it is critical of tech. And they don't embrace criticism of the industry. And I, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. And I think but that belief is fair. Yeah. You mean that the, that view of Silicon Valley is fair. Yeah. Like I think the, their perception of the role of media. Yeah. One of the main actors in this argument is a former partner, former general partner at Anderson Horowitz, Balaji Sernavasan. And he claimed that quotations, the entire tech press was complicit in covering up the threat of COVID-19. And he also claimed that relying on the press is, quote, outsourcing your information supply chain to folks who are disaligned with you. Furthermore, according to the articles, uh, according to the vice authors, Srinivasan proposes that a better model for media would be GitHub, venture capital funding, and cryptocurrency. Uh, which I think is kind of funny and sort of unfortunate as well. Like, I think I d mm. and feel free to jump in whenever is like tech uses the media as PR mainly rather than seeing journalism as an, an objective entity that's not, doesn't care necessarily mm. about like the, doesn't have stakes in like a company's success. So originally, the reason why I sent this across was maybe less about the whole role of journalism in tech media, but just also, actually, I was thinking about it from a different perspective, because this was something that was in an invite-only platform that's publicly facing, right? People know about Clubhouse for the most part. But what I found interesting was that this was a conversation that was, I guess, quote-unquote, leaked, right? So you're participating in a somewhat safe space you know air, air quotes and something you said there was interpreted a certain way and or you were not able to defend yourself because it was never that type of conversation and the reason why i was thinking about this is like what will this mean going forward both for a clubhouse or all the, or within other semi-private communities even like our own making discord like what happens if someone is taken out of context or they say something that gets totally twisted around yeah that's right? a good question that's kind of how i was approaching because i all that other drama all that other bullshit i was like oh whatever like it's another day at the sort of like I twitter mean, office for these guys that's a good question on one yeah. hand i want to be like they should just not say this stuff anywhere where there are receipts uh like where they can be recorded but what, what does that mean for conversation though if we continually have to like I, I i feel this more than ever like you have to be very careful and i'm not opposed to it because it's a it's because this is where we are at this moment in time but i also think what is the other side of the outcome if everything is self-censored right what happens like the conversations will probably continue to happen just they'll be driven underground and does that prevent us think... from having public conversations Oh, I don't think I would call it censored. I don't. No, no, self censorship. Because you're like, oh man, like any, any, even in a semi-private environment, 
I have to be very careful with what I say. Someone might just screenshot something and like put it out. Like maybe they'll just pull this two sentence reply, like, oh, I hate so and so without really understanding maybe this was like, you know, a bunch of people just messing around or some shit, right? Like that's what I'm trying to say is that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also wonder about like what legal protections you have within Clubhouse. Like, you know, can you sue someone? leaking something on clubhouse because i think we can all say that like let's say you tweet something on twitter and then take a screenshot (laughs) and i then i don't know post that screenshot on instagram that you would you would not be surprised if that happened because you tweeted on twitter Mm -hmm. okay like i'm just trying to establish like what are the boundaries here right and clubhouse Mm -hmm. don't know it's still a large group of people even if it is like an invite only community. Yeah. But oh, what what protection do you have? Yeah. I mean, this is for me. I don't even want to get into the legality of it. I think it's starting to get away from it, but it's also thinking like Well, I think about our making you, Discord is an interesting question. Yeah, cuz do you have to like say, you know what? Anything that happens in these four walls, I mean, digital walls, like cannot be discussed outside of these boundaries. But you couldn't, right? you, you couldn't say that. Like, okay, add like an extreme example. Let's say someone, yeah. uh, okay, this is, I'm just, this is going to sound terrible. I'm just going to say this is an example, a completely fictional example. But let's say someone posted on the Macon Discord a child pornography link, okay? Yeah. And shared it as like. Well, you're really going deep. Very deep. And okay, shared anyways. it as something that they had, I don't know, created or had access to or whatever were part of like making. Wouldn't it be our responsibility to report that? Yes, correct. Like that's not private information that then stays within, like they don't get protection just because they because posted it. Because they broke it. the law though. Right. But if I say something, if I say something like racist, misogynistic and that piece of yeah yeah uh, i get you content that's well, I'm just I'm, I'm just responding to the fact that you can't say you can't make a blanket statement like everything you post here stays within these four walls because what if what if it is something that's completely clear-cut illegal then that's not staying within our four walls and if we did make that yeah. statement then like would people assume that you know it also protects them when sharing stuff like that i'm not saying our making community is like this at all by the way our making community <laughs> scaring people away is super lovely and have never said anything illegal in the slightest yeah um yeah. Yeah, i don't know i want it to be it should at least be a place where you can <sighs> i would not support hate speech but you should be allowed to like yeah. talk about i mean we've had discussions about racism on our discord and people are at different yeah. places, you know, and people should be able to have those publicly publicly expressed thoughts on our Discord. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, do you have to preface that? Like, when people join, this is part of the terms and conditions. Like, you know, you can't XYZ do this, share it out, unless you're break. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just having some sort of thing in place. Because I sure as hell and I, like, join some of these things. I don't really filter, but I also don't know if I'm in the mindset that this might 
end up being content somewhere else. Well, you know what I said earlier at the top of this conversation of like not enjoying how we continue to participate in like fame based culture. Like, I also think the reality is like if you're afraid of someone like taking screenshots or like leaking a recording of you, you must be a public figure in some way because that's usually where the interest comes from. It, you know, it. it's not from. Unless like someone out there is personally like trying to get revenge on you, most likely it's because yeah. you are somehow else in the public eye. And it is a bummer that like that comes with being in the public eye. And I don't know if we've mm. talked on air. I mean, about- I, I would push back. I would maybe push back because I think nowadays you don't, there, there's a lot of people that have been quote unquote canceled that were nobodies. Right, just because they said the wrong thing and someone saw this video, someone I mean, maybe the argument is that this happened in a public sphere. It wasn't on a semi private place, like a, a leaked WhatsApp group or, or iMessage group with your friends. Right. I'm just I'm just saying that like I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with your like one person's celebrity background as being the determinant of whether or not their words and their messaging is p- used against them mm, i mean i don't know i've not really seen a lot of examples of like non-famous people getting canceled clearly you haven't been looking at all the karen meme accounts because there's a lot of people that have been i think lost jobs you know um, re- a ton of shits happened but i think that's sort of getting too far away from the original point I mean, yeah, I think I, in many ways, I, I'm. This is what I was thinking about too, as we were kind of going through this process and this this framework and this institution of media, right? The role of media and journalism is something that is, in many ways, up for interpretation, right? Because regardless of where you are, like I guess what I mean by up for interpretation is that. We're now at a point in time where this information warfare is like very real. And that some someone might think Fox News is journalism. Someone might think the New York Times is journalism. Someone might think, or they should think, like routers is journalism, right? Well, but try not to think that any individual entity is the description of journalism, but okay, go on. But, but what I'm trying to say is that I think that I'm start. I, it sounds stupid because like, it's it's taken me a while to kind of understand the role of uh, a well-functioning culture and society with a robust journalism backbone because we come from a different media background right like i talked about sneakers and shit like that's not the most important thing but then and also to that point there was no sort of like robust journalism in that space to keep brands honest which is what i think journalism does in other industries right? Journalism is there to keep you honest. And it's like this invisible force. Because if you step outside the boundaries, or you do something that's not on point, then you will be reported upon. Versus like, you know, coming from the world of fashion, it's like, you can't really talk shit about brands because they pay your paycheck to an extent. So I think what I'm trying to say is that if you were to take a step back, you have to understand that for better or worse, you kind of need journalism to be a functioning part of society and culture. Oh, I I totally agree. I don't I don't think that and, is up for debate. 
right now between the two of us. I mean, I mean, for me, I, 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 despite the fact I look at journalism and media so much, I was maybe just looking at looking at it too superficially, for just like this is information. But there's an there's another layer below the information that actually is like the connective cultural glue. Information as well can speak truth to power, like just information, you know, like Mm -hmm. without needing to, not everything needs to be editorialized, right? Like for example, uh, COVID-19 case counts. You don't have to editorialize that to share Mm -hmm. that information Mm -hmm. about case counts and have that be a way of holding institutions accountable, you know, Mm -hmm. like just having that information be available. So I think information is also journalism in the way that it's provided and you know, verified and fact-checked, et cetera. And I think this does get back to something else I haven't said yet that I wanted to mention was something I liked about the Vice article, which I think is doing journalism well, is bringing up again the away employees that were interviewed um, originally for that expose on away, you know, Mm -hmm. and like pointing out like to do an expose on away or like any other tech company isn't just like a reporter sitting in their room bashing a founder, right? Like they interviewed a bunch of former and current employees and asked them, you know, would you be willing to report on your company, you know, like on the working conditions and to provide us details. And it takes time and methodology to put that together. And one thing that's really a shame about this whole argument is that like uh, it completely overlooks these people's like testimonies and experiences. Like Mm -hmm. that, that would, that should be the bigger story that people are interested in reading or like spending time on is those like labor conditions right within a way rather than some kind of tiff between founders and journalists yeah yeah i know we don't engage in journalism the way that like you said like reuters does right like we don't have a system that is like that but i don't know how to put this at the same time we don't come on air and say things that we know to be false well i mean that's that's tough because you don't think i mean ultimately uh that's a good question actually it's like do people that say and sprout fake shit like do they know it's fake I would like to think yes they know but also part of me thinks that no they they actually believe it to be true right I don't I don't even know how to find out if you don't you don't I, I don't know how saying, to find like, out if people really believe what they're saying or if they don't like that I feel like that's where I'm at <laughs> yeah there was a short article in axios covering the same news item and i kind of liked this author's conclusion dan primack he's the author of pro rata and he wrote this like really short news article anyway his conclusion was everyone needs to take a breath tech's job is to build tech media's job is to report on all aspects of what's being built for better or for worse. And when mistakes are made, reflexive defensiveness is the worst posture. And I I wrote in my notes, like, this pretty sums up how I feel about this. Like, media needs to report on the good and the bad, and 
you can't decide you hate media when it says things about the bad. Yeah. It's just not balanced. Yeah. It's like pouring right now outside. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's, it's like super yeah. Weather weather super Was there a particular weird. reason why you wanted to talk about this today? I didn't really want to talk about fashion. A couple of the links you shared with me were fashion related and Kanye related, who I also didn't want to talk about. And then as you know, I usually like to talk about things that are timely in some way, and Clubhouse is pretty mm -hmm. timely. So that's that's it. Yeah. That's my thought process. Fair. Cool. Um, should we cap it off for the day then? Yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap things up. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or supporting us on patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at charisse at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. -E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up.